I have to say, uh, by far, my favorite moment in the run-up to the elections we had in November was at a town hall meeting, you know, one of those debates between Ms. Clinton and Mr. Trump. And it was toward the end. It might even have been the last question. You know, they have people stand up from their seats and ask a question. And there was one person who stood up in the end and he asked, can each of you name one positive thing you respect in the other person? And I, um, I'm actually going to play that question for you, or have Luke play it for you, and I, you'll hear it. But I also want you to listen to the audience reaction to the question. We won't listen to the candidates' responses, but we'll listen to the audience. So go ahead. Starts right away. Question to both of you is, regardless of the current rhetoric, would either of you name one positive thing that you respect in one another? I listened to it several times, uh, and what I heard was there was first kind of this swell of, I don't know what to call it, surprise and awe. You almost heard the people go, oh my gosh, what is he asking? And then, of course, you had applause. Um, you didn't have many, uh, much applause during the, just the, for the question. You had applauses for some answers. Um, and I was trying to make sense of this kind of, um, I don't know what it was, this buzz around this question. And it, it almost went like you were, had been watching a political date, and suddenly it went to a game of truth or dare. In this case, the questioner dared them to do something very risky. That's where you get that, oh my gosh, response, and then the applause. And the audience loved it, because that is high drama. It's risky because the questioner is asking them to do something very vulnerable, to say something that they really admire about the other person. The word vulnerable in Latin is vulneratus, which is a passive word which means able to be wounded. Someone's vulnerable, and it was a military term. Someone who is vulnerable is someone who is in danger of being wounded. And of course, that's why this was high drama, because for each of the candidates to truly praise another person would be to give up some of the power to put that person on a better footing than themselves in some area which made them vulnerable to bless that person in that way. And of course, the part of the, you know, the truth or dare aspect of the dare of this is not A, will you do this? And I think part of the audience kind of you know, pleasure in this was they were sick of the other stuff. They were sick of a whole campaign of essentially cursing the others. They were sick of that rhetoric. It was no longer a rhetoric of courage, it was a rhetoric of desperation. So part of the joy is just, wow, something different. But secondly, they realized, oh my gosh, this is a risky moment. Can they name something, and, it, and will it be convincing? <laughs> will you really believe that they admire this about another person? So A, do they have the content? <laughs> and B, can they say it with feeling? Can they choose not to secure themselves for the moment, which would put them in a temporary free fall? <laughs> to bless the other person. Well, in the end, of course, their answers were somewhat disappointing. You remember, remember Mrs. Clinton actually complimented Donald Trump on his children, which was nice to say, but he, she kind of went around Donald Trump. And, and uh, Trump complimented her on her toughness and determinacy. So yeah, it was hard for them. 
and it wasn't convincing. <laughs> Saying good things about another person in a hostile or competitive situation is not easy, right? And it's hard to do because even when there's no obvious threat to the self, even when we're not actually in some obvious competition, the ego just loves to take sides. We love to take sides. I mean, before we can even probably have conscious memory, it just made us feel better. The moment we discovered that people and things were different, that there was diversity in the world of all kinds, that things could be now perhaps labeled as bad and good. And then it quickly moved to, you're bad and I'm good. I'm talking about the pleasures of feeling superior to other people. And of course, judging others verbally, publicly, in gossip, that is the quickest, easiest way to make ourselves feel better. And it's natural if you view life as a zero-sum game, where there's only X amount of power, X amount of advantages, and you're on your own, then anybody else's win is a loss for you. Blessing another person is vulnerable. You're giving away power. Now place this in a situation where there actually is competition, and there actually is hostility. Maybe work where you know there are some people who have it out for you. Or maybe in a neighborhood where you know there's neighbors that don't like the way you mow your lawn or park your car or how noisy your kids are. Where you know there's some kind of slander going around or suspicion of you. Where there actually has been some accusations. I imagine a crowd the size, X number of you right now are being sued by somebody <laughs> in your businesses. These, these things happen all the time. Well, now it becomes hard. What becomes easy is to demonize the other person. And it's natural in some ways, but everything goes out the window when fear comes into play. All nuance goes out the window. Well, the first century Christians to whom Peter was writing certainly would have felt this way. To be a Christian in the first century in Asia Minor, Peter writing from Rome most likely, uh, is writing to a community that is seen as other by their society, a threat, no doubt unjust accusations and slander, insults have been moving around the community about these Christians, these followers of Christ, that's how the word came to be, it's a, it was a defaming word, oh you're a Christian, and of course there would have been some social cost to this. I can imagine loss of jobs or marginalization in the community. It probably hadn't quite gotten yet to violence. Nero's persecutions might not yet have started. For one, Peter says in verse 13 of our passage in chapter 3, who is there to harm you? That probably would have been hard for him to say if Christians were being burned at the stake right now. The imperial ban on Christians probably hadn't quite been kicked in, but you know the Christians were still suffering from these things, these other accusations, insults, suspicions, marginalization, aggressive behavior, hostility. At this point, the war was probably a culture war. Well, we don't even pretend to have suffered like they have even then, but we've been in something of a culture war, haven't we? Our country has been in something of a culture war. We aren't suffering, I'm sure, like the first century folks did at this point, in this way. But the culture wars in our country seem to be as active as ever. There's a lot of name-calling, a lot of meanness. And so Peter's words in verse 9 are relevant. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This might be actually called the age of incivility, 
that we live in now. And if you type in incivility on Amazon, you will now see a whole bunch of books with incivility in the title. You will see studies with incivility in the title. There is a great concern about incivility in the workplace, about bullying. Fully 60% of workers say they have been bullied at work. It's now a tremendous in industry to go in and help companies dissemble a atmosphere of bullying, of insults, of hardships, often a gossip, slander, rudeness. They recommend things like coming up with a workplace civility policy, training in conflict management, formal and very specific complaint procedures, and management that models civility. Well, here we get in 1 Peter 3.9, Peter's policy on incivility. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, and in the Greek, it's just one word, bless. It's intriguing to think about Peter's remarks, not just in the context of first century culture or in the context of our culture, but in the context of his life. We're kind of in a series on looking at Peter's life, and because we know so much about Peter from the Gospels and we have words from him in his letters, it's really uh, possible to compare a kind of pre-Peter and post-Peter. And so it's interesting to see his advice in the context of his own life as at least we see it or know of it in the Gospels. And so like all teachers, he's probably, as he's teaching these first century Christians, probably teaching out of his own experience, reflecting on his own life, even kind of summarizing lessons he's learned in the meantime. Of course, we remember Peter from the Gospels, don't we? He was probably, I mean, it's hard to say how old the apostles were, but they're probably in their 20s somewhere. I mean, some people thought they were teenagers, but probably in their 20s. They're young. Can you remember yourself in your 20s? <laughs> some of you are in your 20s, so you just... Think, what's going on now? <laughs> but most of us look back in our 20s and we kind of, oh my gosh, myself in my 20s. Well, he probably was going, oh my gosh, myself in my 20s. He was reactive. He was compulsive. He was quick to speak. He was violent. He was quick to pick up the sword, as you remember. Some, someone lost an ear. He was ready to defend Jesus' honor. He was passionate until he got scared. Now we see a different Peter who looks back on that self, that fearful 20-year-old, passionate until he was fearful, maybe a passion that came from fear. You know, there's a therapeutic technique, because we all have a little bit of our childhood still in us, don't we? That child in us that is, that remembers those early formational wounds, fears, insecurities, that little child still running around in us. And there's one therapeutic strategy where when that child starts to kind of, you hear him or her again, says, I'm afraid, I'm scared, this always happens to me. The idea is to imagine yourself as your adult self addressing your childhood self with what you've learned and what you know is true. And you welcome the childhood version of you and you listen to the childhood version of you and you say, you know, it's gonna be okay. There is love, not just fear. Things are not like they were then. There are people who care for you. This does not always happen, even though I'm sorry that it did happen. And so the older, mature version of us speaks into the younger, immature and hurt version of us and brings truth and love to chase away the fear and hurt. Well, I kind of imagine Peter having to do this to himself. I don't believe Peter had nothing of the young Peter in him. If he's like the rest of us, he carried those impulses through his life, those temptations to fear, to lash out, to secure the self and in one's insecurity, to play the game like everybody else, repay evil with evil, curse with curse. 
He had that history and that impulse was in him somewhere, but he had grown up into love. And so he turns this around in a letter to others. And again, the essential teaching could simply be summarized in the word bless. Again, the actual one Greek word there is eulogetai, from eulogy. I imagine many of you have been to um, a uh, memorial service. Someone gets up and presents a eulogy, good words about the person who has passed away. Now, there are other ways that the words bless is used in the scriptures. Often we see blessing in the Old Testament as the passing of some type of honor and privileges from a, from a parent to a child, a father to a son. Um, we see this in the case of, of all the patriarchs. But here, that Old Testament notion of blessing, of passing on a kind of power and privilege is kind of in the background. What would be in the foreground is the practice of publicly praising someone, much like the opportunity our candidates had in that debate. They had a chance to bless, in the terms that Peter's talking about here, to do a little eulogy. To say, an eulogy, logos, you, just means a good word about someone. This would have been the sense in which Peter would have been using it and that his audience would have understood. His policy is, say something publicly good about the other person or people in such a situation. Can you do it? So I remember when I first met Dallas Willard, I was, I was young, I was in my 20s. <laughs> And I was, you know, trying to figure out my own place in the world, my own theology, you know. And there were bits of things that he said that didn't quite, I didn't quite like. Now, now, I, now I realize I was stupid, frankly. I mean, <laughs> who was I? And, and, and nevertheless, I've come around, to, I mean, early on, I came around to going, oh my gosh, he's totally right about almost everything. But I remember I kind of, you know, over a lunch, kind of challenged him on some things and <laughs> I'm embarrassed. But, you know, I was, you know I, was, I was developing. And we continued to be kind of acquaintances throughout the years since then, you know, the 25 years. And I would be in several settings with him, sometimes on a panel or in the audience asking a question, blah, blah. And you know what he did every time that I, that I remember? He said something nice about me publicly. <laughs> he just, he just say, oh, Todd, yeah, Todd, I see a question from you. And by the way, I just hear you're doing great work at Biowa. Now... I hope he doesn't remember that lunch very well that we had early on, but it's not beyond Dallas to actually take scripture and apply it to his life. He may have been doing that. <laughs> he may have been practicing with me. <laughs> I think he genuinely liked me too, but I think he may have been practicing with me the spiritual discipline of blessing when cursed or in a hostile situation. I wasn't that hostile, but... So, finding something true and good to say about someone seems to be the first step. It's a spiritual discipline, but like all spiritual disciplines, what they're designed to do is show us what's in our heart. So immediately when we do it, we discover if our heart's in it or not. And of course, that is what happened at the debate. They did it in whatever form they were able to, and I imagine they quickly understood, and certainly I think to everyone else, if it was really in their heart. And I'll leave that up to them to judge, I won't, but it sure, it sure didn't sound like their heart was in it. And that's the great thing about spiritual discipline. Spiritual disciplines are non-negotiable. Obedience, non-negotiable. We go ahead and obey whether we feel like it or not. But then what we do is we open the truth of the heart as we do it. Because it just becomes obvious to us. <laughs> because it just felt a little false. And by the way, that's okay. You're practicing being like Jesus. But the spiritual disciplines kind of opens the truth of, go, I did that, that felt a little forced. Obviously, my heart isn't quite there. My friend Tim Muehlhoff, a communications professor at Biola, talks about two kinds of communications. 
He talks about conceptual communication and relational communication. Conceptual communication is simply what our words mean when we talk. When Ms. Clinton said she admires Mr. Trump's children, that's what those words meant. We all know what that sentence means. And so minimally, what we need to do in situations like this is we need to find something that is true and good in the midst of this back and forth with people in a hostile or tense environment. Conceptually communicate some concept. We're not making it up that's true and good. And I think both candidates did that. But the other kind of communication is relational communication. And relational communication is not just finding something good to say, but it's to do so with actual respect and dignity for the other person. And so we see Peter saying in verse 15, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. So Peter's saying, you know, it's okay to respond, uh, if you will, in defense of something, to give an apology in the terms of apologetic for something. If you're being attacked, if, if there's an insult, if things are being said that's untrue, it's important to be able to say what's true and to tell someone when you think they might be wrong and to provide evidence that they're wrong. And we see the grown-up Peter in the book of Acts very confidently and boldly taking his gifts of boldness but addressing the Sanhedrin, addressing others, the Sadducees, and saying, you know, this is Jesus whom you crucified. Gentlemen, he says, gentlemen, this is Jesus whom you crucified. So it's okay to identify where people are wrong, where their accusations are unfair or unjust, to provide counterexamples. And I'm so grateful for both apologists and people in the public square who are calling people out on their perceptions, especially of Christians that are biased and misguided. But Peter adds this, when you do so, do so with gentleness and respect. That, my friends, is relational communication. <laughs> it's not the words I say, but it is the way I see the other person. And so, I think Peter, too, is thinking back on his place. He says, you know, I probably said some things that were true, but I did not say them with gentleness and respect. So let's review. When you're attacked, reviled, people say things about you, or think they're saying about you, what do you respond? How do we respond like Jesus? Well, of course, one thing that you feel is fear. What do you do with that fear? The first command is don't speak evil. Don't speak evil. You can say the truth, but don't speak evil. And you know, saying nothing is always an option. <laughs> if you're like, I don't think I can say one good thing with gentleness and reverence. I don't even think I can say one good thing. Silence is always an option. But if you can, bless them with words. Find something good at some point in the conversation, the relationship, that is true and good, and bless them with it, a eulogia, a good word about them publicly, to them, in front of others. And the next step would be to truly care for that person. Well, how do you do that? That's hard. Well, Peter says here, do not fear their threat. Literally, in the Greek, it's do not fear their fear. <laughs> They're probably afraid of you. Do not fear their fear. But then he says this, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Now that's a funny next step. You would think the next step would be to love them. But he says the next step is really to reveal Christ as Lord. Well, why would that make a difference in a situation of hostility and conflict to revere Christ as Lord? What does that mean? Well, one is that Jesus Christ will ultimately be exalted. The confidence that although he himself allowed himself to be humbled in those circumstances, he will ultimately be exalted. And second would be to know that 
Jesus' project as Lord of the universe was to reconcile people to himself. Listen to Colossians 1.20. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and then this bit, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. To revere Jesus as Lord is to revere his project. His project was to reconcile all people to himself, not just to win, not just to gain the upper hand, but the key word is his project was to reconcile. You know, I think Peter had a passion for Jesus, but it was a passion for Jesus. <laughs> and it was a passion, understandably, for revolution. Things needed to be, there needed to be a revolution. The Romans had taken more. He had a passion for the revolution. Jesus had a passion for reconciliation. I don't think Peter got that at first. He had a passion for Jesus, but not for reconciliation. And he didn't know it'd have to come with suffering. My favorite definition of passion is this. It is a thing for which you are willing to suffer. I am not willing to suffer for math. I wasn't good at it, and I'm not willing to go through the suffering of being good at it. Sometimes we think passion is that thing that we're always filled with good feelings about. No, passion, which originally meant suffering, as in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, using the older form of passion, meant suffering. The thing that we have a passion for is the thing we're willing to suffer for. Think of what you have passions for. My daughter has a passion for art. And she suffers for it. <laughs> there's loneliness, there's long hours, it's tedious, there's lots of judgment and criticism. She is willing to suffer for it because she believes in its goodness. I think Peter had to learn is a passion, not for Jesus, but for Jesus' mission, to reconcile all people to himself. And so Peter says now in verse 15, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil for Christ off." For Christ suffered once for sins. He now gets it. Before suffering was the worst thing. Now it's like, I get it. It was about suffering for the sake of reconciling all people to himself. And Peter will say, you know what? He says, repay evil with blessing, for you were also called to inherit a blessing. He says, haven't you inherited a blessing? <laughs> Wasn't it you who originally hostile to God and God gave you a blessing in return? Well, that is just what we're doing here. In repaying evil with a blessing, we are trying to open them up to the blessing that is theirs. We know this goes way back to the covenant with Abraham, where he said to Abraham, God did, go from your country and your kindred of your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. The big project for, is for God to bless the world, to reconcile them to himself, and now I'll give a blessing in the older sense of an inheritance. Everything that is Jesus's will be ours and can be the world's. And so we want to bless them because ultimately what the people of Abram bring and those of us Gentiles who are grafted in is we bring the blessing of Jesus to people. And Peter can remember that moment, right? When Jesus came to him after he denied him, after Peter denied him, basically after he passive-aggressively cursed Jesus. And Peter is probably expecting a curse for a curse. And Jesus tells him the truth. Do you love me, Peter? The painful truth is, well, I do, but I didn't. So Jesus spoke the truth, but then Jesus gave him a tremendous blessing. He said, tend to my sheep. That is conceptual communication, which means lead the flock. It's relational communication. I love you and trust you. <laughs> what a blessing. Peter remembers that. And so in this culture in which, man, the verbal culture wars are as crazy as ever, how do we live as Christians in a world like this? Well, yes, we speak the truth. But the harder and bigger project is to bless. 
so that we might bring Jesus to people, not to win or to gain the upper hand, but to reconcile the world to him. And it's a passion we're willing to suffer for. Heavenly Father, we just take a moment now to let the Holy Spirit put his finger on anyone in our life that is making life hard for us, family member, colleague, child, neighbor. Take a moment first to say what the truth of the situation is. There may be injustice here or false accusation. But Lord, help us bring to mind some way or situation in which we can eulogize them in the midst of all this. Speaking truth with gentleness and respect that they might be reconciled to the person of Jesus.